Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Brown here. Glad you could join us today. So I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read at Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Right? Right. All right, so we're going to start off with some obituaries here. First one from the obituary section, the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, October 14, 2023. Sandra Iris Turner, March 1st, 1938 to October 9, 2023. Author unknown. Sandra Turner, Sandy to most of us, came into this world in 1938, the only child of Faye Esmond Wallach and Joseph Wallach, immigrants from Austria and Russia. Sandy would describe her Rochester, New York upbringing as typically American, complete with bobby socks, chaperone dances, and softball games in which her superior batting skills were highly prized. She was extremely popular both then and throughout her life, as she made friends easily with her quick laugh, clever quips, and big blue eyes. As the young, at the young age of 16, Sandy fell madly in love with Jacob Jack Turner, 1934-2017, whom she met at a Yom Kippur breakfast where Jack, ever the showboat, will balance Sandy's natural social grace, commandeered the piano to lead a sing-along of Camptown races. They married four years later and moved to Buffalo, where Sandy completed both her undergraduate and master's degrees in English while Jack attended medical school. Their son was born in 1961, followed by their daughter Rachel in 1964. When Jack completed his medical training, they moved to Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, where Jack researched ballistics for the Army, while Sandy taught English in at Towson State College, now Towson University, and began raising their two young children. In 1968, after Jack's discharge, Sandy and Jack packed up their two kids, their Gordon Setter cap, and their modest belongings into a wood-sided Ford Country Squire station wagon and drove across the country and started a new life in Los Angeles, California. While Sandy always prioritized homemaking, she became increasingly involved in the Los Angeles arts community. She began as a docent at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, where she specialized in 19th century American art, which she and Jack also collected at the, t at the time. Sandy later served on the museum's board of trustees and ultimately received the title of lifetime trustee, an honor she greatly valued. In addition to her involvement at LACMA, Sandy volunteered at the J. Paul Getty Museum's photo archive for many years. An opera lover, Sandy also contributed to her city's performing arts community as a longtime board member at the Los Angeles Opera. In the course of her 85 years, Sandy, together with Jack, stretched far beyond her humble beginnings in upstate New York, moving west, traveling the world, building several distinguished art collections, and more. Throughout that wondrous journey, above all else, Sandy treasured her family, to whom she was fiercely loyal and committed. Sandy died peacefully of natural causes at her home in Beverly Hills on October 9, 2023. She is survived by her son, Michael Turner, and his wife, Carla, her daughter, Rachel Turner Vogel, and her, hus her husband, Paul, and six grandchildren, Henry, Nina, and Asher Vogel, and Annabelle, Joseph, and Benjamin Turner. That was Sandra Iris Turner, March 1st, 1938 to October 9, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times. 
for Saturday, October 14, 2023. All right, here's one from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 15, 2023. Louise Gluck, 1943 to 2023, former U.S. Poet Laureate, Nobel winner from Nardine Saad. Louise Gluck, the witty, candid, and uncompromising former U.S. Poet Laureate who won the 2020 Nobel Prize in Literature and a Pulitzer Prize in 1983, has died. She was 80. Gluck's death was confirmed Friday to the Times by Jonathan Galassi, her longtime editor at Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud. No details about her cause of death were immediately provided. Louise Gluck's poetry gives voice to our untrusting but unstillable need for knowledge and and connection in an often unreliable world, Galassi said in the statement. Her work is immortal. Gluck was the first American woman to win the Nobel Prize in Literature since Toni Morrison in 1993 and the first American poet so honored since T.S. Eliot in 1948. The Swedish Academy's Prize Committee recognized Gluck for her unmistakable poetic voice that with, that with austere beauty makes individual existence universal. Her literary career began with the aptly named collection First Born, published in 1968. Other acclaimed works include Ar- Ararat and The Triumph of Achilles from 1985, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award. She attended Sarah Lawrence College and Columbia University and was a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. A professor at Yale and a resident of Cambridge, Massachusetts, Gluck served as U.S. Poet Laureate from 2003 to 2004. She also won the Pulitzer Prize in 1993 for her poetry collection, The Wild Iris, in which she described the miraculous return of life after winter in the poem Snowdrops. She also won the 2014 National Book Award for Poetry for Faithful and Virtuous Night. Her 2012 collection, Poems, 1962-2012, won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and in 2016, President Obama presented her with the National Humanities Medal in a White House ceremony. Gluck's Au Revoir included 12 collections of poetry and two volumes of essays of literary writing, proofs and theories, and American originality, and was largely preoccupied with childhood and family relationships as well as her pursuit of clarity. Her 2016 collection, Averno, is considered a masterwork for what the Nobel Committee for Literature described as its visionary interpretation of the myth of Persephone's descent into hell and the captivity of Hades, the god of death. She She seeks the universal, and in this she takes inspiration from myths and classic motives, said Anders Olsen, the chairman of the committee, when Gluck won the prize in 2020. The publicity-shy author famously had an ornery reaction to that win, giving an interview who broke the news two minutes on the phone to ask his questions so she could have her morning coffee. For those unfamiliar with her work, admitting that many were, the self-aware author noted that there isn't really a good place to start because the books are very different from one another. I would suggest they not read my first book unless they want to feel contempt, she quipped. Gluck was also diffident about prosperity. In a 2012 interview, she acknowledged that prizes can make existence in the world easier 
but doubted that they could guarantee the work's immortality. She ascribed her accolades to the fact she wrote poems that accorded with uh, the taste of the period, viewing them as taunts of what she could uh, do once. It was teaching all over America, in North Carolina, Ohio, and UC campuses in Berkeley, Davis, Irvine, and Los Angeles that unnerved and excited her, allowing her to feel a thrill that never abated. In Theory of a Memory, her fifth poem from Faithful and Virtuous Night, Gluck wrote, Long, long ago, before I was a tormented artist, afflicted with longing yet incapable of forming durable attachments, long before this, I was a glorious ruler uniting all of a divided country. So I was told by the fortune teller who, uh, who examined my palm. Great things, she said, are ahead of you, or perhaps behind you. It is difficult to be sure. And yet she added, what is the difference? Right now you are a child holding hands with a fortune teller. All the rest is hypothesis and dreams. Gluck was born on April 22, 1943, in New York City. Her parents' second child, but the first to survive. Her father was a businessman and dreamer who created hundreds of inventions and founded Ex Acto, known for knives with, her, with his brother-in-law. Her mother was a housewife and celebrated cook who she said was well-educated but without any particular sense of vocation. Nevertheless, she had the temperament and stamina and force of an empire builder, Gluck wrote. Three years after her birth came a younger sister and the family moved to Long Island which she described as a prosperous Jewish suburb on the South Shore. These were, as far as I could judge, communities of displaced New Yorkers, mainly second and third generation, she said. There was little sense in such places of Europe. Certainly, there was very little sense of Hungary or, or Russia in my house. No language is spoken other than English, aside from my mother's Wellesley French major, French in ceremonies verse, and, less frequently, Japanese phrases she acquired when she and my father lived in Japan. She started reading at a very early age, conserving the Greek myths and Oz books. Her father would read her Joan of Arc at bedtime, omitting the final burning, and taught his daughters to write books. We made up stories, which she transcribed for us on squares of paper that were folded to make pages, a certain number of words on each, leaving room for, for us to draw pictures. Somewhat later, but not much later, I found an anthology of poetry. Reading Blake and Shakespeare, I felt intensely that these were the people I wanted to be talking to. I wanted to be what they were, she said. She did well in school, but not so much socially, describing herself as never being lighthearted and merry, rather than rather anxious and twitchy and a very tense child. She attended Catholic school in France and said that her household affirmed a sense of the unlimited power of women, even if the world around her didn't. Graduating high school a year early, she also finished what she believed to be her first book at 16. She sent it to publishers with no timidity or sense of irony, and although it ended up in a box, lines she wrote at 13 and 15 would later show up in reconstituted poems. Haunted by syntax, Gluck said she read work by John Keats, Emily Dickinson, William Butler, Yeats, and British novels as a teen. About what anorexia landed her in psychotherapy, and that saved me from the narrower and narrower worlds I constructed for myself 
from the arid brevities of my poems at that time. The poet, who also had epilepsy, said the seven years she spent in analysis radically changed the course of her life that made my life possible, really. She was married twice and had one son, Noah Drano, who survives her. That was Louise Gluck, 1943-2023, to former U.S. Poet Laureate, Nobel winner, by Nardine Saad on the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 15, 2023. All right, here's another one. From the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 15, 2023, Ronald Edward Goldman, May 2, 1939 to September 28, 2023, author unknown. Ronald Edward Goldman, fellow of the American Institute of Architects, passed away on September 28, 2023, at the age of 84, from acute myeloid leukemia. Like everything else in his life, he faced this challenge with humor and a warm smile. The son of Dr. Theodore Ted and Rosalie Goldman, Ron was born on May 2, 1939 at Cedars-Sinai, Los Angeles. He was the Beverly Hills High School class president, 1957, quarterback, and ranked tennis player, and started on the football team at Princeton University, 1961. He earned his master's degree in architecture and urban planning from MIT. From age 10, he knew he wanted to be an architect. Throughout his life, his intuition was correct. He told his parents the night he met Barbara, I met the girl I want to marry. This August, they celebrated their 61st wedding anniversary. They had two children, Karen and Mark, in whom they instilled a love of family, the importance of education, and the beauty of art and culture. Ron and Barbara were a team, working together, literally side by side, in the same office, designing houses for their family and clients, developing projects that made a difference in their communities, traveling and collecting art, and exploring new restaurants and galleries. Traveling nationally and abroad to watch their grandson Jason's kayak competitions were some of their favorite family trips. For the past 20 years, they have walked their Montana Avenue neighborhood at sunrise each morning. Founding an architecture firm in 1975, Ron Goldman created some of the most distinguished homes, schools, religious buildings, and commercials develop developments in Southern California. He earned more than 50 design awards for his architecture and developments. His work is celebrated as architecture that shelters without enclosing and defines without limiting. The Los Angeles Times called his work the epitome of the California dream. Goldman's Firth Rossi, Rossi's myriad of projects can be viewed at rongoldmanfaia.com and the award-winning Cove Colony House video at www.rongoldmanfaia.com slash cove-colony. Ron was an advisor to the California Coastal Commission and worked with the city of Malibu to ensure proper building and design standards. A big believer that developments affect everyone in their environment, Ron did a wide range of community service to benefit both urban areas and remote communities worldwide. After a 50-year career as an active architect, Goldman retired but remained very active and passionate in his community projects, the most recent of which is Ron's Recreate to Recreate, a conceptual effort to provide neighborhood parks within a short walking distance from residents in Compton and other urban areas. He was a founding member and met weekly with SMART, Santa Monica Architects for a Responsible Tomorrow, pursuing the philosophy that 
Good design is good business. At 84, Ron looked forward to his weekly breakfast with his high school buddies and the reunion of his high school club, the Dukes. Ron sought to change the world through his architectural talent and enrich the lives of many through the design and landscaping environment he created. We were lucky to experience the world through his dreams and his eyes and architecture. He is survived by Barbara, Karen, and Mark, their spouses Lindsay and Maya, grandson Jason, brother Kenny, Laurie, and sister Lynn Shapiro. There will be a private celebration of life. Donations to his memory can be made to Planned Parenthood LA or the Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation. It was Ronald Edward Goldman, May 2nd, 1939 to September 28, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 15, 2023. Here's one more from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 17, 2023. Phelan Chuck Horowitz, November 25th, 1936 to October 15, 2023, author unknown. Phelan Chuck Hurwitz, 86, died peacefully on October 15, 2023, surrounded by his loving family. As an entertainment attorney, he advocated for, for and represented musicians, film, and television talent, and many other artists for nearly 60 years. He was also committee leader in the Los Angeles Jewish community. Born in Fall River, Massachusetts, Chuck gave piano concerts as a teenager with his mother, an opera singer. His love of music never left him. After graduating magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Dartmouth College, he considered a career as a pianist, but ultimately chose to become a lawyer and earned his law degree from Stanford University in 1961. He found a way to combine his love of music with the law by practicing entertainment law. Upon moving to Los Angeles in 1965, he dedicated himself to making sure artists, particularly musicians, had effective legal representation. His clients included the Monkees, the Captain and Tennille, D.D. Bridgewater, Weird Al Yankovic, Dr. Demento, and Kansas. He also devoted a large part of his life to community organizations. He has been a commissioner and chair of the Los Angeles County Commission for Children and Families, 1990-2006, commissioner of the Los Angeles County First 5 L.A. Commission, 1999-2006, President of the Jewish Family Services, 1991-1994. President of, the, of Builders of Jewish Education, 1994-97. President of Temple Isaiah, 1975-77. He also served on the board of a number of other Jewish and arts organizations. Above all, Chuck cherished his family. Chuck met his wife Renee in the spring of 1958, and they shared 65 wonderful years. Together, they raised three children, Deborah Hurwitz Pitt, Rob Pitt, Matthew Hurwitz, Anna Song, and Daniel Hurwitz, Michael Ravitch. He is also survived by his seven grandchildren, Benny Pitt, Clara Pitt, Maxine Song Hurwitz, Jack Song Hurwitz, Alexandra Song Hurwitz, Elijah Hurwitz Ravitch, and Asher Hurwitz Ravitch, all of whom he adored. Nothing made Chuck happier than to sit at the piano and play Broadway show tunes surrounded by his wife, children, and grandchildren singing along. An incredibly kind and generous man, he loved to offer advice, and he was a mentor to many. His family has been forever influenced by him and will cherish many happy memories of his long and fulfilling life. 
The funeral would take place on Tuesday, October 17 at Mount Sinai Memorial Park in Hollywood Hills. In lieu of flowers, the family asks that donations be made in his memory to Jewish family services. There was Phelan Chuck Hurwitz, November 25, 1936 to October 15, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 17, 2023. Okay, on to some more Israeli news. This is from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, October 14, 2023. U.S. resists calls to press for Israeli restraint by Tracy Wilkinson and Courtney Serbamanian. Washington. As Israel presses ahead with what it promises will be a crushing assault on the Gaza Strip, the Biden administration has carefully avoided making public calls for restraint or a halt to hostilities. Horrified by the brutal, deadly offensive that Hamas militants launched Saturday against Israelis, President Biden has been forceful and unrelenting in condemning the Gaza-based uh, group and, support, and in supporting Israel, acknowledging the traumatized nation's outrage and desire for revenge. And most of the long string of clashes between Israel and Palestinian or other Arab groups over recent decades, including Lebanon's Hezbollah, the U.S. has urged de-escalation and a return to calm. But as Israel ordered 1.1 million Palestinians in Gaza City to evacuate their homes and seek safety in the southern Gaza Strip ahead of the anticipated Israeli land incursion, U.S. officials cited the importance of international law, but did not cast doubt on Israel's plans. Some human rights organizations say the forced evacuation of non-combatants under siege could constitute a war crime. No country can tolerate having a terrorist group come in, slaughter its people in the most unconscionable ways, and live like that, the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Anthony J. Blinken said on, fr on Friday at a news conference in the Qatari capital of Doha. What Israel is doing is not retaliation, it is defending the lives of its people. Blinken is holding urgent meetings with officials in several Arab states after traveling to Tel Aviv on Wednesday to emphasize U.S. support for Israel. His main goal is to prevent the war from expanding beyond Israel and Gaza and deter other enemies of Israel from getting involved. Blinken said he and other U.S. officials stressed to Israeli leaders the importance of taking every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians, but added that any country faced with what Israel has suffered would likely do the same. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin III was in Tel Aviv on Friday to show solidarity with the Israeli armed forces. Asked about the possibility of massive civilian deaths in Gaza, Austin said the Israeli armed forces are professional, they are disciplined, and they are focused on the right things. At the same time, Austin said of the Hamas attacks, there is no excuse for the inexcusable. Blinken and Austin's trips and comments were aimed at publicly reinforcing Biden's measures of lockstep support for Israel. But if death and destruction in Gaza spike in the days and weeks ahead, the U.S. risks being blamed for failing to prevent the worst. To the extent the administration can keep its concerns private, it will partly to reassure to the Israelis. John Altman, Mideast Program Director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, said Friday in a teleconference. But the downside of that is a sense that U.S. is doing nothing 
and sitting on its hands while the rest of the world is seeking to pressure Israel? And why is the U.S. not joining? Analysts and former diplomats said the private messaging is likely to be more nuanced than public chorus, which gives officials cover to raise more troublesome issues. Blinken and others are likely telling the Israelis privately they should take care not to let the coming offensive against Gaza squander that support and sympathy Israel now has, said Daniel Kurtzer, former U.S. ambassador to Israel and to Egypt. My guess is they're telling the Israelis you don't want the narrative to shift. We know you want to decapitate Hamas, but you don't but don't go overboard where you become the problem, Kurtzer said. The U.S. should also remind Israel, as it receives even more weaponry from U.S. arsenals, that the U.S. does not want to be dragged into any other conflicts and that the Jewish settlers in the West Bank should be reined in because they also could further destabilize the area, Kurtzer added. Ambassador Eric Edelman, a former State Department and White House official who served as then-Vice President Dick Cheney's principal deputy assistant for national security affairs, said Israelis are grateful for the outpouring of international support they've received, but understand there's a short half-life once they begin military operations and the civilian collateral damage in Gaza takes its toll. I think they want to do the maximum amount of damage they can to Hamas its physical infrastructure, killing its leaders, and taking out as many of the frontline fighters as they can before the international pressure on them becomes so great that they have to stop, Edelman said. Public, publicly criticizing Israel at the outset could also impede the Biden administration's private efforts, according to Edelman, who said the U.S. has long preferred using diplomatic back channels to de-escalate conflicts in the Middle East, pointing to similar conflict between Israel and Hamas in the 2008-09 Gaza War and subsequent fighting in 2012 and 2014. Biden took a similar tack during a flare-up between Israel and Hamas in May 2021, when the president avoided publicly commenting on the Israeli military strikes, despite facing increased pressure from the Democratic Party's progressive wing to call for an end to the military campaign. The president instead focused on behind-the-scenes diplomacy to pressure Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to bring the 11-day conflict to an end. John F. Kirby, spokesman for the White House National Security Council, was pressed Friday on how the administration can be confident uh, Israel will respect international rules of war and the Geneva Convention when already at least half of some 1,900 people killed in Israeli airstrikes are women and children. We don't want to see any more innocent life lost or suffered as a result of the conflict, Kirby said. We routinely and will continue to talk to our Israeli counterparts about issues regarding the law of armed conflict and respect for innocent human life. That was U.S. resist calls to press for Israeli restraint by Tracy Wilkinson and Kurdi Subramanian from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, October 14, 2023. All right, here's uh, two articles from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 16, 2023. First, L.A. marches show solidarity with Israel. <clears throat> Thousands turned out for rally, calling for the safe return of Hamas's hostages by Rachel Oranga and David Zonazer. Waving Israeli flags and clutching images of people believed to be kidnapped by Hamas fighters, 
Thousands of pro-Israel demonstrators marched to the Museum of Tolerance on Sunday, calling for an end to the bloodshed. The demonstration began mid-morning at Young Israel of Century City, with demonstrators, many draped in Israeli flags, marching to the Museum of Tolerance, where politicians, community leaders, and others spoke in solidarity with Israel. The time has come for the world to wake up and to confront the terrorists, said Rabbi Marvin Heyer, the founder, chief executive, and president of the Simon Weisenthal Center, which organized the event, along with dozens of other groups. Let us stand up to the terrorists as we stood up to Hitler, he told the crowd. Los Angeles is home to the second largest Jewish population in the world outside Israel. The Pico-Robertson neighborhood where the march took place is a major hub for the city's Jewish community. Marches of all ages, some pushing strollers, others relying on walkers, made their way west along Pico Boulevard with clutches of demonstrators singing or stopping to take selfies among the crowd. One group at the event carrying an oversized banner depicting the faces of dozens of people who went missing during Hamas's attack on an Israeli neighborhood and music festival chanted, Bring Back Our Babies. Shabnab Levy, a resident of West Los Angeles, carried one of the many kidnapped placards that had been distributed to the crowd and plastered on trees, light posts, and bus shelters. The one in her hands featured a photo of a couple and the message that Gad Hagal, 73, and Judith Lynn Weinstein had been kidnapped from their home. I wish I could carry all of the signs, all of the, all of the hostages, she said. I just want the world to know that there are innocent civilians being held by a terrorist organization, and we want them all to be freed and returned back to us in one piece, unharmed, untouched. In the last week, Israelis, Jews, Palestinians, and others in Los Angeles have voiced anxiety and anguish over the fate of their loved ones in the Middle East. More than 4,000 Israelis and Palestinians have been, have been killed since October 7, the day Hamas launched its surprise attack on Israel. The harrowing images of civilian deaths, kidnappings, and the Palestinian exodus have re revived deep historical traumas. A day before the march, thousands of pro-Palestinian uh, demonstrators gathered near the Israeli consulate in West LA to condemn the Israel's ongoing aerial bombardment of the Gaza Strip in retaliation for Hamas's attack. The protest was one of many held in major cities around the world calling for, calling for an end to the violence. That demonstration was briefly interrupted by a small crowd of pro-Israeli counter-demonstrators, one of whom fired pepper spray, injuring a Times photographer. Israeli troops have been massive, massing along Gaza's border as they appear to be readying for a ground invasion in an effort to dismantle Hamas. Palestinians have been ordered by Israel to flee northern Gaza, where more than one million people live, raising fears of a massive humanitarian crisis. Palestinians have said they fear a repeat of Nakba, or catastrophe, when about 700,000 fled or were expelled from what is now Israel during the 1948 war surrounding the state's creation. Organizers of Sunday's event have repeatedly described the October 7 attack as the bloodiest day for the global Jewish population since the Holocaust, when 6 million Jews perished in Nazi Germany. I'm here today to tell you, in 1939, we couldn't fight back, said Israel Bahar, General Consul for Israel to the Pacific Southwest, in his address to the crowd. In 2023, we can and we will.
Kathy Lawrence, who lives in L.A.'s Pico-Robertson neighborhood, said she joined the march to show her support for Israel and a disgust for terrorism. She said that over the last week, she had been feeling shock, fear, sadness, and despondency, not just over the initial attack, but also over protests that have targeted Israel in recent days. When things like this happen, it makes me think the world hates Jews, she said, and that's really difficult for me to accept that the world would kind of be okay if we all went away. Lawrence, who works as a production manager, said the march was a way for her to help provide show of strength. Ellen Hurwitz, 56, said she has heard from a number of friends in Israel whose children have been deployed in recent days as part of the war in Gaza. Doing a march today is the little I can do to help, the North Hollywood resident said. The conflict between Israel and Hamas has generated protests, exacerbated tensions on college campuses, and even tested limited intimate relationships. That was L.A. Marches Show Solidarity with Israel by Rachel Duranga and David Zanazer. Uh, the Associated Press contributed to this report. Here's the second article. This is called Thousands Protest at Israeli Consulate. The pro-Palestinian demonstrators gather in West L.A. to decry airstrikes in Gaza by Jay Clendenin, uh, James Quealy, and Myung Jay Chung. Thousands of pro-Palestinian protesters gathered near the Israeli consulate in West L.A. on Saturday to condemn the country's ongoing aerial bombardment of Gaza in retaliation for Hamas's attacks one week ago. Demonstrators began gathering on Wilshire and Sepulveda boulevards around noon, and by 3 p.m., the size of the crowd had grown to several thousand. At one point, the southbound lanes of the nearby 405 freeway were briefly shut down. Carrying signs that said, Free Palestine and End the Occupation, the crowd marched from Wilshire Boulevard and Granville Avenue, where the consulate is located, to a federal office building that houses the FBI's Los Angeles offices about one mile away. Videos from the scene show green and red smoke billowing into the air and signs decrying apartheid. The demonstration was largely peaceful, though the appearance of a small crowd of pro-Israeli counter-demonstrators sparked confrontations midday. As pushing and shoving occurred between the two sides, one man among the pro-Israeli crowd fired a volley of pepper spray, injuring a Times photographer. Footage shaken at the scene also showed a small group of men, all in black, some of whom wore Israeli flags around the necks like capes, pepper spraying demonstrators before running away. A number of people who would identify themselves as only as volunteers wearing yellow vests stepped in several times throughout the day to, decry, to, to try to de-escalate clashes with counter-protesters. Around 4.15 p.m., some members of the group leading the demonstration called for an end to the protest and portions of the pro-Palestinian crowd began leaving the area. While there was a sizable police presence in the area, an LAPD spokesman said there were no reports of arrests or serious injuries as of 4.45 p.m. The demonstration was one of many held in major cities across the world Saturday, calling for an end to violence that has claimed more than 1,300 Israeli lives and left more than 2,200 people dead in Gaza since last Saturday. The fighting began on October 7, when Hamas launched a surprise attack killing hundreds of Israelis and also 11 Americans while taking hostages on a major Jewish holiday. Since then, Israel has engaged in a round-the-clock bombardment of a campaign as part of Prime Minister 
Benjamin Netanyahu's vow to destroy Hamas. But the attacks have had dire impacts for civilians in Gaza, already one of the most impoverished locales on Earth, severely limiting access to fresh water and medical supplies for thousands of civilians. Israel's military has said it is preparing a coordinated offensive in Gaza using air, ground, and naval forces. That was thousands protested Israeli consulate by J. L. Clendenin, James Quigley, and Myung J. Chun. And both of those articles are from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 16, 2023. The Associated Press contributed to this report. All right, we go on now to this one. From the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, October 19, 2023, Biden walks a fine line in Israel. President pledges solidarity, but also cautions against all-consuming rage by Amir Madhani and Colleen Long. Tel Aviv. President Biden said Wednesday that Israel had agreed to allow humanitarian assistance to begin flowing into Gaza from Egypt with the understanding that it would be subject to inspections and that it should go to civilians and not Hamas militants. In remarks from uh, Tel Aviv, where the president had gone to show support for Israel after the brutal and deadly attack by Hamas militants that killed roughly 1,400 people, Biden cautioned the nation against all-consuming rage. I understand, many Americans understand, Biden said as he wrapped up his stay in Tel Aviv, likening the October 7 Hamas attack to the attacks against the United States on September 11, 21, that killed nearly 3,000 people. Can't look at what has happened here and not scream out for justice, he said. But I caution this. While you feel that rage, don't be consumed by it, he said. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States, and while we, we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. Biden urged Israel to step back from the brink, not just to ease growing tensions in the Middle East that threatened to spiral into a broader re regional conflict, but also to reassure a world rattled by images of carnage and suffering in Israel and Gaza alike. One million people have been displaced in roughly 10 days, according to the United Nations. Biden's mission was to display resolve in Israel and to diminish the likelihood of a wider war while providing assurances that he was not overlooking the increasingly dire humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. But it was not clear how far the trip would take Biden in trying to tamp down volatile Mideast divisions, particularly after the collapse of his plan to follow the Israel, the Is to follow the Israel stop with an Arab with an Arab leaders summit in Jordan. The day was full of signature Biden moments as he walked a careful diplomatic line. He doled out embraces to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and to first responders, doctors, and victims who witnessed nightmare moments. He spoke quietly of his own history with grief. He told the familiar anecdote about meeting every Israeli prime minister over more than five decades elected in office, starting with Golda Meir in 1973. He quoted an Irish poet. I come to Israel with a single message. You're not alone, Biden said. As long as the United States stands, and we will stand forever, we will not let you ever be alone. His presence and comments to Israeli leaders held weight. 
Netanyahu said that the president's visit was deeply, deeply moving and that Biden had rightly drawn a clear line between the forces of civilization and the forces of barbarism. The civilized world must unite to defeat Hamas, the Israeli leader said. Biden arrived in Israel as nations across the Mideast shook with protests triggered by an explosion Tuesday at a Gaza hospital that killed hundreds. The blast undid plans for Jordan's King Abdullah II to host Biden, along with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi. Abbas withdrew in protest of the hospital attack. The summit was sub subsequently canceled outright. Biden was expected to speak to Abbas and Sisi by telephone Wednesday as he returned to Washington, but his presence in Israel prompted fresh outrage. <clears throat> In Amman, Jordan, a sign hosted, hoisted by one protester labeled Biden and Netanyahu war criminals and said partner in crime. At the Palestinian refugee camp of Ain el Hilwa in South Lebanon, protesters set fire to a cardboard cutout of Biden's head with a rope around its neck and blood painted over his mouth. Amon Safadi, Jordan's foreign minister, told a, a state-run television network that the war is pushing the region to the brink. In Iraq, coalition forces were slightly injured in a spate of, of drone attacks over 24 hours at U.S. bases as regional tensions flare after the deadly hospital strike in Gaza. Two drones targeted a base in western Iraq used by U.S. forces and one drone targeted a base in northern Iraq. U.S. forces intercepted all three, destroying two, but only damaging the third, which led to minor injuries among coalition forces at the western base, according to a statement Wednesday by U.S. Central Command. In this moment of heightened alert, we are vigilantly monitoring the situation in Iraq and the region. U.S. forces will defend U.S. and coalition forces against any threat, Central Command said in, a, in the release. Iranian-backed milit militias in Iraq have threatened to attack U.S. facilities there because of American support for Israel. Biden emerged from the day with at least an agreement by Israel to allow food, water, and medicine into Gaza after days of deadlock. Israel cut off the flow of aid and fuel to the Gaza Strip after the attack that killed 1,400 civilians by Hamas, which controls the enclave. The U.S. has already provided aid and military support to Israel and officials plan to ask Congress for more than $2 billion in combined additional aid for Israel and Ukraine. Biden on Wednesday also announced $100 million in aid to Gaza and the West Bank. The vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas, Biden stressed. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. The grim tone of the discussions between Biden and Netanyahu stood in stark contrast to their op optimistic meeting just a month ago on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly in New York, where Netanyahu marveled that a historic peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia seemed within reach. The possibility of improved relations between Israel and its Arab neighbors has dimmed considerably with the outbreak of the latest Israel-Hamas war. Israel has been preparing for a potential ground invasion of Gaza. There are also fears that a new front could erupt along Israel's northern border with Lebanon, where Hezbollah operates. The Iran-backed organization has been skirmishing with Israeli forces. 
It was not clear yet when the humanitarian aid would begin to flow into Gaza and whether it would include fuel that could power the generators keeping open the hospitals flooded with injured people. Allowing aid into the region has been, had been seen by U.S. officials as a crucial step toward the cooling of tensions in Arab nations after the blast at the hospital, which had been treated, which had been treating wounded Palestinians and sheltered many more who were seeking refuge from the fighting. There were conflicting claims of who was responsible. Officials in Gaza quickly blamed an Israeli airstrike. Israel denied it was involved and released a flurry of video, audio, and other information that said it showed the blast was instead due to a missile misfire by Islamic Jihad, another militant group operating in Gaza. Islamic Jihad dismissed that claim. The Associated Press has not independently verified any of the claims or evidence released by the parties. Biden said data from the U.S. Defense Department showed that the explosion was not likely to have been caused by an Israeli military airstrike. A White House National Security Council spokesperson followed up later with a post on social media that an analysis of overhead imagery, intercepts, and open source information showed Israel was not behind the attack, but the U.S. continues to collect evidence. Based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was, not, it was, it was done by the other team, not you, Biden told Netanyahu. The leaders of the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee in a joint statement said they felt confident the explosion was the result of a failed rocket launch by militants and not an Israeli airstrike. Nearly 3,400 Palestinians have been reported killed by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. An additional 1,200 people are believed to be buried under the rubble, alive or dead, health authorities said. Those numbers predate the explosion at the Ali Arab Hospital on Tuesday. Jordan declared three days of mourning, and Jordanian officials said the summit was canceled after speaking with all leaders. That was Biden Walks a Fine Line in Israel by Amir Madani and Colleen, uh, Colleen Long from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 19, 2023. Madani and Long write for the Associated Press and reported from Tel Aviv and Washington, respectively. Associated Press writers Omar Akur in Amman, Darlene Superville in Washington, and Edith M. Ladera at the United Nations contributed to this report. All right, here's another one from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 19, 2023. Emhoff navigates widening tragedy in Mideast. The Jewish second gentleman reflects on the sheer pain and shock of the conflict that is unfolding by Courtney Subram. Subramanian. Doug Emhoff had a job to do, but first he had to gather himself. Four days earlier, on the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah, Hamas militants had launched a brutal surprise attack on Israel, killing more than 1,400 people. Vice President Kamala Harris and her boss, President Biden, had been fully briefed on the attacks the next morning, and she had called Israeli President Isaac Herzog to offer her condolences. Later that week, she told reporters she had been completely outraged by the extreme acts of terrorism. But Amhoff, Harris's husband and the first Jewish spouse of a president or vice president, had a special role to play, he said in an interview this week with the Times. For more than a year, 
Emhoff has had led the Biden administration's efforts to fight anti-Semitism. The work was not always easy. Last year, he represented the United States on a visit to Auschwitz-Birkenau, but never before had he been called upon to reassure Jewish Americans in the wake of hundreds of killings of their of their co-religionists. After Hamas's onslaught, the White House had hastily refashioned a previously scheduled roundtable. Emhoff had uh, planned to attend with Jewish leaders to be a more high-profile event. Biden would speak. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan would be there. Uh, Emhoff, who, like most Jewish and Palestinian Americans, was dealing with what he called very raw feelings of his own, would have to attempt to comfort others. As Biden and Emhoff waited to enter the room where they would address the Jewish leaders assembled for the roundtable, the president pulled the second gentleman aside, held his hand, and looked him in the eye. How are you doing? How are you? Biden asked Emhoff. It's just got it got me, Emhoff recalled, his eyes misty. And then I had to go out and speak. And so you saw my, my raw emotion. In his first public remarks since the October 7 attacks, an emotional Emhoff spoke of his deep visceral connection to Israel and its people. We witnessed a mass murder of innocent civilians. It was a terrorist assault, he told the audience, as he smashed his fist on the lectern he stood behind. Biden, with his hands in his pockets, stood next to Emhoff and listened. And there is never any justification for terrorism. There are no two sides to this issue, Emhoff added. During his speech, Biden remarked that he could see the pain in some of your faces as he walked into the room. He fixed his gaze on Sheila Katz, chief executive of the National Council of Jewish Women, who was crying. You okay, kiddo? he asked. Well, your fear for family, friends back in Israel... You worry about kids being targeted at school about about going about their daily lives. You're hurt by the downplaying of Hamas's atrocities and blaming Israel. This is unconscionable, Biden said. Demonstrators over the Israel-Hamas conflict have roiled cities and college campuses. Different groups of protesters have gathered to express solidarity with Israel or Israelis to support Palestinian civilians and to protest Israel's uh, military campaigns. But going so far as to express support for a group like Hamas is wrong, Emhoff told the Times. In my personal opinion, speaking out in favor of terrorism is wrong, he said. Hamas is a terrorist organization who committed terrorist atrocities to innocent people, and so that cannot be supported. In the days since the October 7 attacks, Israel has laid siege to the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip launching a series of airstrikes and cutting off territories' access to water, power, and basic supplies, a campaign that aid groups have warned is creating a humanitarian crisis. Israeli troops began preparing for a potential ground invasion of Gaza, where airstrikes have already killed around 3,500 Palestinians, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. In the U.S. details of Hamas atrocities, and graphic images of the bloodied scenes they left behind in southern Israel have flooded social media, television screens, and newspapers. Overwhelmed hospitals and Palestinian bodies strewn across the rubble in Gaza after Israeli airstrikes have also played on loop. The onslaught of horrible events and imagery has left some Jewish and Palestinian Americans despairing of any hope for peace in their region. Grief has weighed on Emhoff over the last 10 days, too. 
It's just a very raw. It's just very raw for me as a Jew and as someone who has really put myself out there. He said, but hopelessness has not overwhelmed him. Biden and Harris have continued to push him to speak out against bigotry and violence because it's important. He said, despite how painful this is, the outrage and just the sheer pain and shock of what's happening. I'm still going to keep doing what I'm doing. Focus on fighting against hate and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Federal authorities have heightened security in cities across the country over fears that the war could lead to anti-Semitic or Islamopho- Islamophobic violence. On Saturday, a week after the Simchat Torah attacks, a Chicago area man was arrested in the fatal stabbing of a six-year-old Palestinian Muslim boy in what authorities have called a hate crime. Wadia Al-Fayomi was stabbed 26 times and his mother was wounded. It's sick. I am sick about it, Emhoff said of the killing. To survive this moment and ensure hate doesn't further divide the country, Americans have to come together, Emhoff said. The most important thing is bringing groups together so we can fight against hate together, he said. No one can fight alone, which is something that Harris taught me. There's nothing worse than feeling alone. That was Emhoff Navigates Widening Tragedy in Mideast by Courtney Subramanian from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 19, 2023. All right, here is one more from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, October 21, 2023. Israel says it doesn't plan long-term control of Gaza. Strikes against Hamas continue, two American hostages freed by Najib Jobain. Samia Kulab and Joseph Krauss. Khan Yunus Gaza Strip. Israel said Friday it does not plan to take long-term control over the Gaza Strip after an expected ground offensive to root out Hamas militants that rule the territory. The Israeli military continued to punish Gaza with airstrikes while authorities inch closer to bringing aid to families and hospitals after uh, uh, affected by a complete Israeli siege. Meanwhile, Hamas militants Friday freed two Americans, a mother and her teenage daughter, who had been held hostage in Gaza since Hamas launched its grisly incursion into Israel two weeks ago, slaughtering more than 1,400 people, mostly civilians, and taking roughly 200 hostage, the Israeli government said. Judith Ranan and her 17-year-old daughter Natalie had been on a trip from their home in suburban Chicago to Israel to celebrate the Jewish holidays, family said. They were in the kibbutz of Nahal Az near Gaza, October 7, Simchat Torah, a festive Jewish holiday, when Hamas fighters stormed out of uh, out of the territory into southern Israel. The pair, who also hold Israeli citizenship, were the first hostages to be released. Hamas said it was letting them go in an agreement with the Qatari government for humanitarian reasons. Their family had heard nothing from them since the attack and were later told by U.S. and Israeli officials that they were being held in Gaza, Natalie's brother Ben said. I am overjoyed that they will soon be reunited with their families who have been racked with fear, President Biden said. The International Committee of the Red Cross, which transported the freed Americans from Gaza to Israel, said the release was a sliver of hope. The two Americans were in the hands of the Israeli military, an army spokesman said. Relatives of the other captains welcomed the release and appealed for others to be freed. 
We call on world leaders and the international community to exert their full power in order to act for the release of all the hostages and, mi and missing, the statement said. Hamas said in a statement that it was working with mediators to close the case of hostages if security circumstances permit. The group added that it is committed to mediation efforts by Egypt, Qatar, and other countries. Israeli military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hangari said Israel was continuing to work for, uh, to return hostages and find the missing, and its goals had not changed. We are continuing the war against Hamas and ready for the next stage of the war, he said. The Gaza Health Ministry said 4,137 people have been killed in Gaza since Israel struck back, the majority of them women, children, and older adults. Speaking to lawmakers on Friday, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant laid out a three-stage plan that seemed to suggest that Israel did not intend to reoccupy the territory it left in 2005. First, Israeli airstrikes and maneuvering, a presumed reference to a ground attack, would aim to root out Hamas, he said. Next will come a lower-intensity fight to defeat remaining pockets of resistance. And finally, a new security regime will be created in Gaza along with the removal of Israel's responsibility for life in the Gaza Strip, Gallant said. Gallant did not say whom Israel expected to run Gaza if Hamas is toppled or what the new security regime would entail. Israel occupied Gaza from 1967 to 2005 when it pulled up settlements and withdrew soldiers. Two years later, Hamas took over. Some Israelis blame the withdrawal from Gaza for violence that has persistent, persisted since then. The humanitarian crisis has worsened for Gaza civilians every day since Israel halted entry of supplies two weeks ago, depleting fuel, food, water, and medicine. Two days after Israel announced a deal to allow Egypt to send aid, the border remained closed Friday as Egypt repaired uh, the Rafah crossing damaged by Israeli strikes. Israel on Friday bombed areas in southern Gaza where Palestinians had been told to seek safety where it tried to destroy Hamas in retaliation for its brutal rampage in Israel two weeks ago. Fighting between Israel and militants in neighboring Lebanon also raged, prompting evacuations of Lebanese and Israeli border towns as fears of a widening conflict grew. Palestinians in Gaza reported heavy airstrikes in Khan Yunus, a town in the territory south, and ambulances carried men, women, and children streamed into Nazar Hospital. The hospital, Gaza's second, tar uh, second largest, already was overflowing with patients and people seeking shelter. The Israeli military said it had struck more than 100 targets across Gaza linked to the territory's Hamas rulers, including a tunnel and arms depots. More than a million people have been dis uh, displaced in Gaza, with many heeding Israel's orders to evacuate the northern part of the sealed-off coastal enclave. Although Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called areas in southern Gaza safe zones earlier this week, Israeli military spokesman Nir Dinar said Friday there are no safe zones. UN officials said that with the bombings across all of Gaza, some Palestinians who had fled the north appeared to be going back. The strikes coupled with the extremely difficult living conditions in the south appeared to have pushed some to return to the north, despite the continuing heavy bombing there, said Ravina Shamdazani, 
a spokesperson for the United Nations Human Rights Office. Gaza's overwhelmed hospitals are rationing dwindling supplies and fuel for generators as authorities work out logistics for a desperately needed aid delivery uh, from Egypt that has yet to enter. Doctors in darkened wards across Gaza performed surgeries by the light of mobile phones and used vinegar to treat infected wounds. With supplies running, at, running low because of the Israeli siege, some Gaza residents are down to eating one meal a day and drinking dirty water. A deal to get aid into Gaza from Egypt through Rafah, uh, the territory's only crossing not controlled by Israel, remains fragile. Israel said that the supplies could go only to civilians and that it would thwart any diversions from Hamas. Work continued Friday to repair the road at the crossing, which had been, had been damaged in airstrikes with trucks unloading gravel and bulldozers and other heavy equipment filling in large craters. But there, was, uh, but there also appeared to still be differences over the manner of delivering aid. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was working with Egypt, Israel, and the United, St the United States and others to overcome the impasse that was preventing the trucks from entering. UN Deputy Spokesperson Farhan Haq told reporters Friday. Guterres wants to ensure meaningful numbers of trucks cross daily that inspection of truck cargo is expedited, and that UN authorities have fuel to distribute the supplies in Gaza. More than 200 trucks and some 3,000 tons of aid were positioned near the crossing. Israel said that the supplies could only go to civilians and that it would thwart any diversions by Hamas. It was unclear if fuel for the hospital generators would be allowed to enter. Israel has evacuated its own communities near Gaza and Lebanon, putting up residents in hotels elsewhere in the country. The Defense Ministry announced evacuation plans Friday for Kiryat Shimona, a town of more than 20,000 residents near the Lebanese border. Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group, which has a massive arsenal of long-range long rockets, has traded fire with Israel along the border on a near-daily basis and hinted that it might join the war if Israel seeks to annihilate Hamas, Israel's archenemy, Iran, supports both armed groups. The violence in Gaza has also sparked protests across the region, including in Arab countries allied with the U.S. In an address from the Oval Office on Thursday, Biden again pledged unwavering support for Israel's security, but said the world can't ignore the humanity of innocent, of, of innocent Palestinians in Gaza. Speaking hours after returning from Washington from an urgent visit to Israel, Biden linked the current war in Gaza to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, saying Hamas and Russian President Vladimir Putin both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. On Friday, the White House announced that Biden would seek $14.3 billion to support Israel in its war with Hamas. The money is part of a supplemental funding request that totals more than $105 billion, including aid to Ukraine, border security, and more. The White House said the assistance for Israel would be geared toward air and missile defense systems. There is also $9.15 billion for humanitarian aid, which would be split among Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, and other hotspots. 
Administration officials said the money can be directed to where it's most needed. All of the funding requires approval from Congress, which is in turmoil because of the inability of the House Republicans to unite behind a candidate for the vacant speaker's position. An Israeli airstrike late Thursday hit a Greek Orthodox church that was housing displaced Palestinians near the Ali Arab Air Hospital, where an explosion earlier this week killed an estimated 100 to 300 people. The Israeli military said Thursday said Thursday's strike had targeted a Hamas command and control center nearby, causing damage to a church wall. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry said 16 Palestinian Christians were killed. The Greek Orthodox Patriarchy of Jerusalem condemned the attack and said it would not abandon its religious and humanitarian duties to provide assistance. Palestinian militants have been have fired daily rocket barrages into Israel from Gaza, and tensions have flared in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Thirteen Palestinians, including five minors, were killed Thursday during a West Bank battle with Israeli troops, which Israel called in an airstrike, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. That was Israel says it doesn't plan long-term control of Gaza. By Najib Jobain, Samia Kulab, and Joseph Krauss from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, October 21st, 2023. Jobain, Kulab, and Krauss write for the Associated Press. All right, here's some other international stories. Uh, this one's from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, October 14th, 2023. Israeli embassy employee in Beijing stabbed hospitalized from the Associated Press. Beijing. A 50-year-old Israeli man who works at the Israeli embassy in Beijing was stabbed Friday in front of a supermarket, Chinese police and the Israeli government said. Beijing police said they had arrested a suspect, a 53-year-old foreign man. They described the victim as a family member of an Israeli diplomat. No motive was given for the attack, and it was unclear if it was connected to the war between Israel and the militant group Hamas. The employee was transferred to a hospital, and he is in a stable condition, an Israeli government state, uh, statement said, without giving additional details. A video posted on social media showed a man with a knife grappling with another man on the ground and stabbing him several times, leaving a trail of bloodstains on the sidewalk. People working in the area said they heard the victim shouting as police cars and an ambulance arrived. A police cordon was set up and the blood la uh, later washed away. The stabbing occurred as Muslims across the world took to the streets in large protests after Friday prayers over Israel's intense bombing campaign in Gaza Strip. In the Gaza Strip, uh, following the brazen attack by Hamas, Hamas militants against Israeli civilians and soldiers in southern Israel last Saturday. Also Friday, Israel sharply criticized China's statement about the Hamas attack. Israel's foreign ministry said its ambassador in Beijing, Rafi Harpaz, had depressed his country's deep disappointment to China's envoy to, uh, to, for the Middle East, Zhe Jun. The two diplomats talked by phone Thursday. There was no clear and unequivocal condemnation of the terror, terrible massacre committed by the terrorist organization Hamas against innocent civilians and the abduction of dozens of them to Gaza, the Israeli statement said. The Chinese announcement 
the Chinese announcements do not contain any elements of Israel's right to defend itself and its citizens, a fundamental right of any sovereign country that was attacked in an unprecedented manner and with cruelty that has no place in human society. Asked about the Israeli statement, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said that China opposes acts harming civilians and violating international law. China will continue to work unremittingly for de-escalation of the situation and the resumption of peace talks, he said. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, speaking at a joint news conference with the European Union foreign policy chief, said that China's Mideast envoy would travel to the region soon to work toward a ceasefire and de-escalation. China has supported the Palestinians in their demand for an independent state. Israel has the right to establish a state, and so does Palestine, Wang said, saying the failure to create a Palestinian state is the root cause of the conflict. In Beijing, several plainclothes police officers were stationed outside the Israeli embassy in addition to the normal contingent of uniformed officers. Some 1.25 miles away at the Palestinian embassy in Beijing, plainclothes officers were also on hand, and one was tightening wires on a fence. Since the war broke out, anti-Semitic remarks have surged on Chinese social media. Bombarded with hostile messages, the Israeli embassy in Beijing is filtering comments on its Chinese social media account. The U.S. ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns, posted on X that we are shocked by today's attack on an Israeli diplomat in Beijing, adding that the U.S. embassy had offered its full support to the Israeli embassy and the Israeli community in China. There was Israeli embassy employee in Beijing stabbed hospitalized from the Associated Press out of the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, October 14, 2023. Here's one more worldly story from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 12, 2023. Zelensky petitions global defense leaders for aid from the Associated Press. Brussels. For the first time, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky joined a meeting of more than 50 defense leaders from around the world Wednesday to make a personal pitch for military aid in the face of flagging political support in the U.S. and new pressure on allies to send weapons to bolster Israel's war with Hamas. His presence underscored growing concerns about cracks in what has been staunch international backing for Kiev in its war against Russia's invasion and worries that Ukrainian forces haven't made measurable progress in their counteroffensive as winter closes in. Asked about concerns that Ukraine might get less military support because of the war in Israel and Gaza, Zelensky said there was a very understandable volume of material that the U.S. and Europe could provide. He said he had asked that, uh, that question himself, but added that nobody really knew and that he was still assuming U.S. and European support. As for the Israel complication, of course everybody's afraid, and I think also Russia's counting on it, on dividing support, Zelensky said at the news conference with Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo. Next Monday, we will mark the 600th day of our resistance to Russia's full-scale aggression against our people, against Ukraine. And today, no one can say for sure how many more days we will have to defend our de independence and to defend our identity, Zelensky told the gathering as the meeting opened. But we can already say several things which I think are important, he said. 
First, Russian President Vladimir Putin will not achieve Ukraine. Second, Russia cannot afford a new arms race. And third, democracy can win this battle. The meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group hosted by the U.S. comes as Ukraine is desperately seeking more weapons to help its troops regain ground from Russian forces before the rainy weather and mud set in. But political chaos in Washington has stalled approval of new Ukraine funding, and there has been growing opposition among some lawmakers in Congress to any increase in spending. Speaking as he entered the North Atlantic Treaty Organization headquarters, Zelensky made note of the Israel-Hamas war, saying that Ukrainians understood such tragedy. But he was also quick to detail Ukraine's ongoing need for air defense systems and long-range missiles to push Russia out of our land. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III told reporters traveling with him to Brussels that support for Ukraine continues unabated. He said a number of allies would announce additional weapons and other support for Kiev. A key demand has been more air defense systems and munitions. The energy, in my view, is still there, Austin said, and I will reassure them that we remain committed to this. He echoed those remarks as he opened the meeting asserting that Ukraine is making steady progress in the war. And he said allies during this meeting would focus not only on meeting Kiev's immediate needs, but also on setting up plans to coordinate investments in Ukraine's future armed forces. The contact group is the main forum for raising contributions of weapons, equipment, and training for Kiev. It meets about once a month in person and virtually, and this is the 16th gathering. Zelensky, who was greeted with applause as he entered the building, went immediately into a private session with Austin and U.S. Air Force General Charles Q. Brown, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That was Zelensky petitions global defense leaders for aid by, from the Associated Press. Out of the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, October 12, 2023. Now back here at home, here's some more tribute articles with Diane Feinstein. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 2nd, 2023. How Feinstein Helped Preserve the Desert by Louis Sahagun. Federal officers were flooded with applications to place solar mirrors across the arid flatlands of southeastern California. But Senator Dianne Feinstein was not going to let that stop her from protecting the heart of the Mojave Desert from development. Some of those projects were headed toward fruition, when Feinstein in 2009 announced plans to introduce bills to establish national monuments on roughly 1 million acres of public lands that are home to bighorn sheep, desert tortoises, extinct volcanoes, sand dunes, and ancient petroglyphs. Her campaign to create the monuments amid the unfolding desert land rush turned out to be a lengthy one, held up for years by conflicts among environmentalists, off-roaders, hunters, and renewable energy interests. Ultimately, she prevailed. President Obama in 2016 designated three new national monuments in the California desert, expanding protection to 1.8 million acres of Mojave Desert landscape. Senator Dianne Feinstein had a passion for the Mojave Desert and everything in it, said David Myers, president of the Wildlands Conservancy and a longtime friend of Feinstein who died on Friday. It stirred her soul. 
the wildlife, the sand dunes, the wind, the people who worked the land, the old California romance with backcountry rows of adventure and enchantment. I visited the Mojave several times with Senator Feinstein and her husband, he recalled. She was comfortable there, wore no makeup, absorbed the wonders of, the, of, of it all. She was a, a defender of the California desert like no other. Obama's designation of the monuments was requesting by, requested by Feinstein, who for a decade had sought to protect land that wasn't included in the 1994 California Desert Protection Act. That measure, which she authored, covered nearly 7.8 million acres, elevated Death Valley and Joshua Tree to national park status, and created Mojave National Preserve. Feinstein had initially asked Obama in 2014 to use his authority to create the protected zones without approval of Congress, to break a logjam of interest that had stalled in her, previ her previous bills. Her efforts came on the heels of Obama's designation earlier that year of much of Angeles National Forest as a national monument. Representative Judy Chu, Democrat of Monterey Park, had urged Obama to act after Congress appeared unwilling to approve her legislation to create a national recreation area to address problems in the San Gabriel Mountains. This year, Feinstein supported a request by Chu and Senator Alex Padilla, Democrat of California, for President Biden to add 109,167 acres to San Gabriel Mountains National Monument. The move would increase the monument by roughly a third and extend its boundaries to the back door of San Fernando Valley neighborhoods, including Silmar, Santa Clarita, and Pacoima. It would also give the U.S. Forest Service greater ability to protect natural resources and manage crowds in areas left out of the 2014 monument designation by then-President Obama. California has lost a true champion for our state, Chu said. Presidents dating back to Theodore Roosevelt have invoked the Antiquities Act to sidestep Congress to protect areas of historic or scientific interest. Such action, however, is nearly always controversial, with critics saying that designations unreasonably limit logging, grazing, mining, and other activities across wide swaths of the West. In California, the development of solar power facilities in the desert had been a top priority of the Obama administration as it sought to ease the nation's dependence on fossil fuels and curb global warming. Companies were racing to finalize their permits, which would qualify them to obtain some of the $15 billion in federal stimulus funds designated for renewable energy projects. At stake was the creation of 48,000 jobs and enough new energy to power almost 1.8 million homes, officials said at the time. Despite fears, political and economic headwinds, Obama in 2016 designated the three new national monuments Feinstein had requested, Mojave Trails, Sands to Snow, and Castle Mountains. Much of the land had been purchased more than a decade earlier by private citizens and Myers Wildlands Conservancy, then donated to the U.S. Bureau of Land Management in anticipation of its eventually receiving the protection of national monument status. A post-designation ceremony held in the Oval Office was one of the proudest moments in conservation, Myers said. He had us pose for a photograph. Senator Feinstein was on Obama's left, and I was on his right. President Obama pulled us closer to, hot to him for the photo, he added, then smiled and said, We're all friends here, right? That was how Feinstein helped preserve the desert by Louis Sahugan, 
from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 2nd, 2023. All right, we have a couple of articles from the California section here of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. Here's the first one. It's a little one. Feinstein to lie in state at City Hall in San Francisco by Noah Goldberg. The public is invited to pay its respects to the late Senator Dianne Feinstein this week as her body lies in state at San Francisco City Hall where her political career began. People will be able to visit and sign a condolences book from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., her office said. The senator's funeral is scheduled for Thursday and will not be open to the public, though it will be live-streamed and broadcast for the public viewing at City Hall. The funeral will take place at the War Memorial and Performing Arts Center in the Herbst Theater. Feinstein served as mayor of San Francisco starting in 1978 after the assassination of then-Mayor George Moscone and City Councilman Harvey Milk. She served in the office for 10 years. Feinstein became the first woman to represent California in the U.S. Senate when she was elected in 1992 and served the state longer than any other senator. She served for years in the Senate on the Judiciary Committee, the Select Committee on Intelligence, and the Appropriations Committee. The 90-year-old senator died Friday at her home in Washington after struggling with a number of health issues. That was Feinstein to lie in state at City Hall in San Francisco by Nora Goldberg. All right, here is another one from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. Lessons on when le to leave the job behind. Feinstein showed that when, it, when work is tied to identity, it can be difficult to walk away by Steve Lopez. In her introduction to gerontology class, USC professor Caroline Cicero shows her students a CNN profile of Senator Dianne Feinstein that first aired in 2017. It's what I'm meant to do, Feinstein said of her many years of public service, which included stints as San Francisco supervisor and mayor. Feinstein then pointed to her head and completed the thought, as long as the old bean holds up, she added. I admired her resolve. But Feinstein, who died last week at the age of 90, was still on the job despite concerns among many that the old bean hadn't held up. Cicero used that video, which reviews the 1978 assassinations of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Melk, and the role that tragedy played in Feinstein's rise to power and her embrace of gun control legislation to spark conversations about longevity. In the case of Senator Feinstein and so many, Cicero said, their identity is wrapped up in the work they do. And yes, I believe that many people don't retire because they, they don't know what else they would do. Cicero repeated a comment she first made to me uh, a few months ago when I wrote that it was time for Feinstein, whose physical and cognitive condition had obviously faded, to let go. I think we need to give people a chance to retire, Cicero said, adding that as people approach the twilight of their careers, they need to consider who they'll be after who they'll be after retirement. I struggled with those very with those very considerations a couple of years ago while researching my book, Independence Day, what I learned about retirement from some who've done it and some who never will. The research was part of my own process of deciding whether I was ready to retire, and in the end, I wanted to keep going. In reality, as the global population of older adults grows in what some have referred to as the silver tsunami, millions of people don't have the luxury of such a choice. They work because they can't afford not to. 
but others keep working because they can't figure out what else to do with their time or simply because they love what they do. Father Gregory Boyle, who helps young men and women redirect their lives after gangs and prison, uh, made a big impression on me when I asked if he ever considered retirement. You want to stay anchored and loving and to togetherness, to a sustain to a sustaining God and be mindful for the goodness in people. For me, that's eternally replenishing, and you have to do what replenishes you, Boyle told me, adding one last thought. Jesuits retire in the graveyard. Boyle and I are roughly the same age. I'm almost 70, and so was California winemaker Randall Graham, who has been called the Road Wrangle. Road Ranger. When I when I met with Graham on his land in San Juan Bautista, where he's trying to develop a climate change resistant grape, he had the same outlook as Boyle and wondered why I'd retire from a job in which I was getting paid to drink wine with him in the middle of a lovely day. I'm going to die in the vineyard, Graham said. Because of the book and my Golden State column, I frequently hear from people in the midst of making the big decisions about when and how to create second chapters for themselves. Paul Silverman, a Ventura County urologist, has emailed me and we've talked on the phone about his struggle and weighing the benefits of working against the advantages and uncertainties of retirement. Silverman, 68, has finally made his decision. I've had a terrific career, but I have come to grips with the changing times in medicine, my health, my limitations, and some classic burnout that I'm sure you have heard about, Silverman said. I'm still working part-time and plan to wind down completely by the end of the year now that I know my patients will be left in better hands than my own. Feinstein had said the current term would be her last, but you have to wonder whether, as her health deteriorated before and during her last term, she was able to think clearly about those kinds of considerations, or whether loved ones, friends, and staffers were able to help her confront those issues. Even when you're off uh, of sound mind, it can be difficult to know when to let go. For my book, I profiled an Orange County paralegal named Jane who believed that at 66 it was time to close out her career. Her workmates threw her a going-away party on Friday. On the following Monday, I realized it was 8 a.m. and I was all dressed up with no place to go, Jane said. By the end of the week, Jane asked if she could have her job back and she worked another three years before hanging it up for good. Work and identity are one and the same. It can be hard to walk away. As a kid in the Bay Area, I was a big fan of San Francisco Giants Hall of Famer Willie Mays, but he's a classic example of someone who stayed on the job long after his skills had waned and it was sad to see. Same with Feinstein. I have to say it broke my heart because I saw her diminishing in the eyes of the public, and that would be their last memory of her, said Helen Dennis, a Los Angeles-based public speaker, columnist, and an advocate for aging well in work and beyond. Dennis is co-founder of Project Renewment, which brings professional women together to talk about work and what comes next, and she's co-author of Project Renewment, the first retirement model for career women. I asked her what advice she would have given Feinstein before her declining health got in the way of her work. I think I would have asked her what she thought would be the risks, the gains and losses of continuing her role in a role, Dennis said. What would she be sacrificing if she left, and what would she be gaining if she stayed? That's good advice for all of us. 
including Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell and President Biden. It's not a question of age for them or anyone else. It's about health and ability. And it's worth remembering that as difficult as it might be for some people to cut the cord, rich experiences await many who make more time for family and friends, find purpose and gratification in volunteering, take on new adventures or even second careers, or simply take time to relax and reflect. Work is not life, Cicero said, and life is not work. That was Lessons on When to Leave the Job Behind by Steve Lopez from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. All right, here is another one from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 6th, 2023. Forever Mayor, fine since regal San Francisco farewell. Trailblazing late senator reigns again in her final homecoming by Mark Z. Barabak. For one last day, Feinstein reigned. She reigned over this lovely, enchanted, vexing, and deeply troubled city. The city where she was born. The city that nurtured and sustained and tortured her, and sometimes broke her heart. Dignitaries arrived and tributes flowed from around the country as those closest to the late U.S. Senator and former mayor gathered for a final remembrance outside San Francisco's majestic city hall. President Biden, in taped remarks, extolled Feinstein's character and steel rod spine. She was always tough, prepared, rigorous, and compassionate, Biden said. Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer hailed her as one of the Senate's great deal-makers. There are many adjectives that rightly describe Dianne Feinstein, he said. Strong, unflappable, winning, practical. It was a service befitting a monarch. Feinstein lay in state Wednesday in City Hall's Grand Rotunda, which is how she carried herself, regal and at times imperious. Lawmakers and ex-lawmakers, California Governor Gavin Newsom, friends, former aides, former antagonists, all sat in a fan of folding white chairs arrayed before the Beau Arts landmark sweltering in unseasonably 85-degree heat. For all its grandiosity, however, uh, the thousand-plus in attendance repeated noisily, noisy flyovers by the Blue Angels. The ceremony was also a homecoming a sentimental farewell from a place Feinstein never forgot or left behind. Senator Feinstein, that is her official title, title San Francisco Mayor London Breed said. It's how Californians and people all over the world knew her. But to us, San Franciscans, she was Mayor Diane Feinstein. San Francisco may be a world-class destination, but its size, a mere 47 square miles, its rivalries, and close-quarters political combat can make it a very small town. In a brisk program lasting just under an hour, Feinstein was remembered by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Vice President Kamala Harris, former, a former district attorney, and Breed. All elected at different times by San Franciscans, all of whom followed up in Feinstein's trailblazing path. Breed said for girls like her, born in the 1970s, it was normal to think a woman could be in charge and achieve anything a man could, but not so for her elders. My mother's generation didn't have that, the mayor said. My mother's generation certainly didn't. But millions of girls my age and long after me have grown blissfully free of the yokes our grandfathers wore because Diane Feinstein wrestled them off. The memorial service was originally planned as a come, on, come one, come all affair. But security concerns changed that and only invited guests were allowed to attend.
The move was both a sign of these politically angry times and a reminder of the violence that stalks our daily lives. Feinstein knew both well. She survived an assassination attempt as a board, member of the Board of Supervisors and two years later became the city's mayor after a gunman killed her predecessor. The office where George Moscone was shot overlooks the steps that served as Thursday's stage. Its gold filigreed balcony shone in the sun. Feinstein's resolute performance the day of Moscone's murder, standing on those steps and announcing the deaths of the mayor and Harvey Milk, her fellow supervisor, braced the city as it reeled and nearly buckled. It set a template for the rest of her political career, unbending, strong, determined. Feinstein was also crisp and focused, and much of Thursday's service reflected that public face. In private, she could be held to work for, as Feinstein was the first to admit, and the memorial included references to that as well. Biden and others remembered Feinstein for a broad range of achievements in the face of steep odds, among them a 10-year national ban on assault-style weapons, protections for a vast swath of the California desert, and efforts to stop the CIA practice of torturing detainees overseas. But for a hometown audience, uh, what might have been most appreciated was how she mastered San Francisco's knife-fighting politics and won the respect and affection of its demanding residents. The city requires its elected officials to engage on a daily basis in complex discussions with informed constituents who will raise the most intricate of local issues, Harris said. No matter if you're walking through the Presidio or attending an event at Delancey Street. This environment, I do believe, guided Diane's style of leadership, the vice president said, even after she reached the heights of national and global power. Pelosi a personal friend and Feinstein's longtime neighbor put it succinctly. She called her San Francisco's forever mayor. Forever mayor, Pelosi repeated. The sweetest eulogy came from Feinstein's 30-year-old granddaughter, Aileen Mariano, who bears a striking resemblance to a younger Feinstein. Mariano spoke of playing hide-and-seek, gardening, chess matches, the terrible haircuts Feinstein insisted on giving her, and, of course, the first 10 lessons in San Francisco history. Feinstein taught her resilience, Mariano said, and the importance of humility and hard work. Her life demonstrated that gender was no obstacle uh, to achievement. She showed young women everywhere that they too can be leaders, Mariano said, that they can make an impact and that they deserve a seat at the table. There was practical advice as well. She would also say to me, if you ever go out of town, no matter where you're going, doesn't matter if you're going to a city or the desert or a beach or the mountains, I always pack a black pantsuit, Mariana said, raising a ripple of laughter. There is no occasion to which you can't wear a black suit. Feinstein, who died last week at age 90, came to political success the hard way. She twice ran for mayor and lost, inheriting the job only when Moscone was killed in November 1978. Five years later, she had to beat back an attempted recall. Like any politician, Feinstein made enemies. Gay activists who thought she was prudent, too prudish. Neighborhood advocates who believed she was too beholden to downtown's moneyed interests. Gun owners who considered her too liberals. Liberals who considered her too conservative. But on Thursday, all was forgiven, if not wholly forgotten. The city, her city, sent her off in triumph. That was forever Mayor Feinstein's Regal San Francisco Farewell by Mark Z. Barabak. 
from the Los Angeles Times for Friday, October 6, 2023. All right, on to some other news. This is from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times from Friday, October 13, 2023. Man arrested in Fresno vandalism, anti-Semitic threat by Christian Martinez. One person was arrested this week in connection with a possible anti-Jewish hate crime at a Mediterranean bakery in Fresno, and police say the suspect may have also been involved in vandalizing a synagogue. The vandalism at the bakery comes as Israel wages war against Hamas militants after their attacks killed more than a thousand people last week. Orlando Javier Ramirez, 30, was arrested Tuesday on suspicion of felony vandalism, committing a hate crime, and making, a criminal, making criminal threats in connection with an incident at Noah's Ark Restaurant and Bakery. On Tuesday morning, a bakery employee found that two store windows had been broken. Police Chief Fresno Police Chief Paco Balderrama said in a statement, a newspaper containing handwritten threats to Jewish-owned businesses was left at the scene. Ramirez is also a person of interest in a felony vandalism incident at a Jewish temple that was also discovered Tuesday morning, authorities say. Anti-Semitic hate speech was also reported Tuesday in Orange County after Israel retaliated and targeted Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip. Flyers that spread anti-Jewish rhetoric were discovered in neighborhoods and on vehicles in the city of Orange, KTLA-TV Channel 5 reported. In Fresno, an employee at Temple Beth Israel found that a glass door had been smashed by a rock. A backpack with more rocks was found at the scene. We are confident that this individual was acting alone, and there are no additional threats to our community stemming from these incidents, Balderrama said in a statement posted to X. We are also confident he has no ties to any extremist or militant groups tied to the conflict in the Middle East. Annie Bagramian, a co-owner of Noah's Ark, told KFSN-TV that the restaurant is not Jewish. We are Armenian Christians, so we are not from Israel, we are not from Palestine, and have nothing to do with the conflict over there, Bagramian said. The bakery was also vandalized in May. Rabbi Wick Winner of Temple Beth Israel told the TV station that the synagogue had been vandalized six years ago. There was man arrested in Fresno vandalism, anti-Semitic threat by Christian Martinez from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 13, 2023. All right, we're going to turn now to the LA Affairs section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 8, 2023. This is called Exuding Confidence. Handsome, smart, and full of pretty words, this con man made a therapist ignore the red flags by Virginia Gilbert. Nine years ago, I fell for the son of my first boss in Hollywood. I had moved to Los Angeles after college searching for home. An adoptee, I never felt that I belonged anywhere, especially in the Northeast where I grew up. His family and mine were friends. While I worked for his father, he attended college near my parents' house in New Jersey. He would stay in their guest room when he wanted to get off campus. Eventually, I changed jobs. He finished college and our families drifted apart. One by one, our parents died. I hadn't thought about him in 25 years until his email arrived. During that interval, I had married, divorced, and become a psychotherapist. I knew how to help clients create healthy attachments, but was unable to help myself. A middle-aged single mother living 3,000 miles away from relatives, I yearned to find the person with whom I belonged. 
So when he told me on our second date that he had adored me since we were teenagers, I believed him. It was the perfect arc to my L.A. story, which began with his father and now promised to end with him. But there were several things that were wrong. I ignored the halo of red flags crowning his head. His apartment was filthy. He had a dog the size of a small pony that he couldn't control. A trail of failed jobs and relationships lay in his wake. There was a story for everything, and nothing was ever his fault. I was sick of dating and determined to love as well. I was sick of dating and determined to love well. He was handsome, smart, and talked pretty. He dotted on my teenage daughter and me. We were family, he said. He got a new job and found us a swanky canyon house to move into. The rent was exorbitant, and I suggested we look for something cheaper. But he was convinced that he would make bank once the, his deals closed. To close them, he needed to schmooze clients, and that required something he didn't have. An American Express card. His proposal? If I got one and made him a cardholder, he'd pay all the bills. Why can't you get your own? I asked, my stomach lurched. He explained that he'd been a loyal customer until he suffered some business reversals, and American Express canceled his membership. So I got him the card. How could I, a therapist and at the time a love addiction expert blogger for a mental health website, fall for such a blatant con? Most of us are easy marks when we're vulnerable enough. Grifters know this, and they are experts at creating narratives we want to believe. Almost immediately after we moved in together, he began shape-shifting into the something I couldn't recognize. He criticized my friends, my parenting, my wardrobe. He admonished me for not appreciating him. I tried harder. I cleaned up the disasters that he and his dog created in every room. I did all the shopping and cooked all the meals. I even got rid of furniture and artwork I loved because they offended him. When he lost his job and we had to find a cheaper place, I liquidated my retirement accounts. It took several months for him to get a new job. I paid all the expenses during that time, and he, of course, promised to repay me. Still, he refused to rein in his spending and ran amok with my credit card. When I confronted him, he accused me of being yet another Nazi feminist trying to control him. Just days after we signed a two-year lease on a more affordable house in the Hollywood Hills, I heard a ping on his phone. I knew what I would, I would find even before I read the explicit text thread between him and a woman and the valley. We went to therapy about it, but his doggedness continued. When I asked him if the affair was really over or when he was going to repay me, he did enough gaslighting to set the house on fire. I did more recon work on his phone, which was a Pandora's box of indiscretions. Not only was he still cavorting with the woman in the valley, but he was also sexting dozens of women he trolled on dating apps. We went back to therapy. He made more promises and broke all of them. I stayed because I couldn't believe the sweet teenager I'd known years ago would betray me. I stayed because if I left, I'd have to face reality. My love story had been a con all along. I started going to a 12-step program to unhook myself from him. It made me confront my lifelong pattern of trying to get unavailable people to love me. Most important, it made me shift my focus from trying to manage his behavior to what I could control, my own choices. I moved my daughter and myself into an apartment in a quiet pocket of West Hollywood. While she was on winter break with her dad, I spent days sprawled on the peacock blue sofa I bought to replace the couch that his dog had ruined. 
when I realized there were no more fires to put out, just a life to restore, I got up. In the six years since leaving him, I've worked my 12-step program, cultivated a mindful mindfulness practice, and written a book. I took the energy I poured into that toxic fixer-upper and poured, put it into my therapy practice, which flourished. Now, at the first glimmer of a red flag from a potential partner, I extricate myself. I no longer pursue fantasy relationships. Instead of listening to people's stories, I watch their behavior. I tell my clients that the secret to life is to learn who to attach to and who to detach from. If I continue following my own advice, and I plan to, I may one day, I may find the right person to love well one day. That was Exuding Confidence by Virginia Gilbert. From the LA Affairs section, Sunday, October 8, 2023. The author is a licensed marriage and family therapist and author of the book Transcending High Conflict Divorce, How to Disengage from Your Ex and Find Your Power. She recently moved to Los Angeles, uh, from Los Angeles to Asheville, North Carolina. Her website is virginiagilbertmft.com. LA Affairs chronicles the search for romantic love in all its glorious expressions in the LA area, and we want to hear your true story. We pay $400 for a published essay. Email laaffairs at latimes.com. You can find past columns at latimes.com slash laaffairs. All right, and here is a book review from the uh, Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, October 8, 2023, A Collision with History. Martin Barron reflects on his time at the Washington Post, Trump, and the Future of Journalism by James Ramey. Rainey. Our memoir-laden era is heavy with tales of how luminaries became who they are. The top editor of the Washington Post during the Donald Trump era figured he had plenty to write about without returning to his Tampa, Florida childhood or his formative journalistic years on the left coast. In Collision and Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post, Martin Barron eschews personal ruminations to show readers his years at the top of the journalistic pyramid. We see him laboring alongside one of the world's wealthiest men to revive a storied news organization locked in a struggle with the media-loathing occupant of the White House and finding a rear-guard action against some of his employees over what it means to be a journalist. After running the Miami Herald and the Boston Globe, Barron became the newspaper world's most famous editor when the 2015 film Spotlight showcased how he pushed the Globe staff to expose a molestation scandal in the Catholic Church. Leif Schreiber nailed Barron's quiet intensity in the film, and the actor narrates the Collision of Power audiobook, though Schreiber reads in his own voice, not the Barron monotone he made favor famous in the Oscar-winning movie. I didn't want to write a memoir. I don't think my life is all that interesting, Barron said by phone from his home in western Massachusetts' Berkshire Mountains. The exception is what I have done in public life. That's what I felt was important. That's what I think is consequential. I think people are entitled to know why I made the decisions I did as the executive editor. Barron joins the LA Times Book Club on Wednesday to discuss Collision of Power, which includes revelations about Trump's unscheduled phone rants, post-owner Jeff Bezos's occasionally quirky ideas, and the failure of post-journalists to inform Barron about one of the biggest stories going. Revelations alleging Russia had meddled in the 2016 election. 
Barron also provides his first detailed comments on internal post-Fuhrer. Over coverage of sexual misconduct during the hashtag MeToo era and racial bias followed, uh, following the 2020 murder of George Floyd. He also writes about his long-running struggle with a genetic disorder that triggers uncontrollable bleeding. Hereditary hemorrhagic telegicasta, HHT, killed Barron's father at 74. The editor, who retired from the post in early 2021, will turn 69 in October. The man whom co-workers know as Marty said he's enjoying a break from the rigors of a career that allowed little time away from the keyboard. He now lives in a craftsman home on a dirt road bordering a state forest where he has time for hiking, kayaking, and sharing a lively local art scene with other Boston and New York's expatriates. If I get tired of commuting with the porcupines, bears, and foxes, I go to New York to talk to people, he quipped. Barron's friends... Barron's friend and one-time colleague, former New York Times executive editor Dean Bacquois, appears in the book and sang its praises. It's important for Americans to understand how much newspapers and news organizations are in peril, Bacquois said, and to read the thoughts of a guy struggling with the place of journalism going forward. Plus, it's just a really good read. The following is a synopsis of my 90-minute chat with Barron, who worked from 1979 to 1996 at the L.A. Times as a reporter, business editor, and editor of the then Daily Orange County edition. Later, he was an occasional subject of my reporting when I wrote about the media for the Times. This has been condensed for clarity and space. Question. Do you expect Donald Trump to read your book, and what would you hope he would get out of it? Answer. I don't think he read his own books. He had other people write them, and it became evident over time he may not have read his own books, so I don't expect him to read this book. What I hope other people take away from it is how one news organization actually works, how we really operate as opposed to the conspiracy theories. There are really difficult decisions that have to be made, and a lot of care goes into those decisions. Question. You reveal that shortly after you, Bezos, and Post executives met with Trump in 2017, he began to call you at unscheduled time, <laughs> times to vent about the paper's coverage. Was any of it newsworthy? Answer, no. It wasn't a revelation that he blamed Bezos for what we were doing or that he considered the paper a big fat lie. He, uh, he said all that publicly. What struck me was that he had the time to personally tell me all that. You would think that the President of the United States would have better things to do. Question. There are many tough stories on Trump, including his exaggerations about his charitable giving and reporting about Russia during the 2016 election. Nobody filled you in on the reporting about the so-called Steele dossier or the staff infighting over how to cover those documents. What happened? Answer. Everybody thought somebody else had told me that someone up the line did it. I wouldn't say that I was angry, but I was pretty annoyed. By then, there were a lot of conflicts on the staff of, over the whole story. We clearly needed to coordinate better. Question. The paper later won a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election and its connections to the Trump campaign, the president-elect's transition team, and its eventual administration. Unlike BuzzFeed, The Post and other big news outlets decided not to publish the full text of the Steele dossier, which later proved to include unproven allegations. Why not just give readers the documents and let them make their own judgments? Answer. 
Most news organizations, including BuzzFeed, for months held on to the same idea that it's important to try to verify what, it what was in the dossier. It was only when CNN reported that it had been handed to Trump that BuzzFeed made the decision to publish the entire report. This wasn't a decision of the American public needs to know this. This was a decision that, well, we need to make sure that we're ahead of the competition. There's potential internet traffic here for us. I think that there were motives that weren't so high-minded at all. At the core of what journalism and journalists should do is verify. Question. A major topic is how many journalists, especially young ones, younger ones, believe that they should have they should not have to abide by traditional rules limiting how they express themselves on political matters. Why should journalists be careful about exercising free speech rights? Answer. The reason we hire people is to go and report and to hear what other people are saying, to look at evidence, to look at documents and opinions by the way they, by the way they come cheap. Everyone has one. Reporting does not come cheap. Anything that undermines the public trust is our reporting, the primary source of our value, is, I think, a mistake. Question. You report that Bezos didn't get involved in story decisions, but he did pick up what he called the mission statement of the Post. Democracy dies in darkness. What was your choice? Answer. I was leaning toward the story must be told. Question. I thought Stephen Colbert had a pretty good one. He said a finalist was, we took down Nixon. Who wants next? Answer. Laughs heartily. That would have been pretty good. Question. You write that, following the death of George Floyd, you failed to do enough to acknowledge the deep pain felt by the post-black journalists. You said it was your most serious error not to push for a higher-ranking editor to help hire a more diverse staff and to strengthen coverage of race, ethnicity, and identity. Even as a high school journalist, you pushed for racial integration. What do you believe you, why do you believe you fell short on the subject? Answer. I was just so single-mindedly focused on how do we get this place turned around? How do we get more traffic? How do we become more competitive journalistically? We needed to do a lot to recover. So adding positions to the senior ranks was not just high on the priority list. I should have been an advocate for adding leadership positions that would have provided more diversity and also led to broader coverage. Question. I have to ask you about a moment earlier in your career. You write about how the U.S. Supreme Court stopped the recount of votes in Florida in 2000 with George W. Bush leading Al Gore by 537 votes. Your Miami Herald reporters joined with an independent accounting firm to do an exhaustive review of ballots in all 67 Florida counties. Their report concluded that Bush most likely would have won, even with a full recount. What did that story show? Answer. We owe it to the readers to go after the facts. They deserve to know. We have to do that regardless of the pressures, but we also do it regardless of the outcome, regardless of who might gain or who might lose. Question. You accomplished a lot, exemplified by the 10 Pulitzer Prizes the Post won under your leadership. So will you miss it? Answer. I was an editor at three different news organizations over the course of 20 years. It became even more exhausting because it's not just a 24-7 job, it's a 24-7 every minute job and I increasingly felt a chasm between how I felt journalism should be practiced and how at least a good number of people on our staff wanted to practice it. I didn't know that I could really resolve that. Now I don't have to deal with that every single day. I'm going to move on and do other things. So no, I don't miss it. For the first time in my life, 
I don't know what I'm going to do next, and I'm fine with that. I will figure it out, I'm sure. All right, and that was A Collision with History by James Rainey from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 8, 2023. All right, let's uh, conclude with a few messages from Biyahad Together, a Jewish National Fund USA publication, and uh, this one is called A Message from Our President, So Much More Than a Billion by Dr. Saul Lizerbrom. There's nothing like a f the feeling of making a difference. I'm proud of the work we do for the land and people of Israel at Jewish National Fund USA, and I'm energized by the difference we are making in helping people declare their Zionism with pride. I'm awed by what we have accomplished since rolling out our $1 billion roadmap for the next decade and by the impact we have made thanks to your support. I am also filled with optimism as I think about our brand new 1 million voices for Israel campaign, which calls on you, no matter your background, beliefs, or age, to be counted as we build a strong, prosperous future for the land and people of Israel. Together, we will continue our incredible work and make a loud and clear declaration of unity and hope. We are unified in our belief that the land and the people of Israel are a light unto the nations. We are unified in our commitment to being a part of Israel's continued growth and success as an oasis of Jewish freedom and self-determination. We are unified in the belief that Israel should be a place where people can fulfill their full potential and live a rich, beautiful life regardless of which city they live in, whether they have a disability or what their background is. We call it One Million Voices for Israel because we are proud to be your voice in Israel. Your voice makes a difference in defining the future of our philanthropic investments. Our ambassadors, lay leaders, have spearheaded each and every initiative that has been undertaken from Kiryat Shimona in the north to Eilat in the south. When a hospital is built, when a group of resilience centers, ther center therapists participate in a training, when a person with disabilities is able to live a life of dignity at the highest standard of care, when museums are made accessible to wheelchair users and the visually impaired, that happened because you stood up and made your voice heard. This matters to me. Israel matters to me. Being a voice for Israel means standing up for our Jewish homeland with pride and confidence and investing in its future. For some people, this is a financial investment. For others, it's emotional. And yet for, uh, for yet others, it means giving time and energy. Whatever being a voice for Israel looks like for you, I encourage you to lean into that expression and own it wholeheartedly. Join us. Whether you've never been or you you go every year, remember the family and home the fam remember the family and come home for a visit to Israel with Jewish National Fund USA. We are your backstage pass to Israel. If you're celebrating a milestone event or marking a different a difficult moment, honor it by planting a tree in Israel. Follow us on Instagram at JNFUSA or on Facebook at Jewish National Fund and share all the incredible things that are happening in our ancestral homeland. I can't wait to hear your voice join the chorus. That was uh, a message from our president, So Much More Than a Billion, by Dr. So Lizerbrom. Uh, that's from the Together Voices of Jewish National Fund USA. You can always reach me at president at jnf.org. Let's read this one real fast. Making a difference, meet Jacob Dennis, agricultural changemaker. His time in Israel is changing Liberia's future. 
Jacob Dennis is the latest recipient of the Schreiber Scholarship Fund established by Scott and Robbie Schreiber of Northbrook, Illinois to bring more students to the Arava International Center for Agricultural Training. My country needs people. We need human resources, shared Jacob. Going to Israel brought me to a new height, and now I'm teaching so many others across Libya, Liberia what I have learned. This will be Dennis's second time at ACAT. He has already established a farm school called Moshaf Liberia Development Network in honor of the Israeli Moshaf he lived on, on during his studies. But his dreams expand well beyond his fields. Already more than 10,000 Liberian farmers and 3,000 students have benefited from the variety of radio programming, teaching engagements, informing, uh, informing information booklets, and school programs he and his organization produced based on what he learned in Israel. In the future, Jacob hopes to build a website and adopt an existing establishment with over 200 students to develop a formal grade school and high school for the local children who do not have access to traditional education. He is returning to ACAT to improve his knowledge of research methodology so he can experiment on how to best grow crops in Liberian soil and teach others. His time at ACAT has already had an impact on farming in Liberia, and with his return, the future is even brighter. Until next time, shalom and peace.